0: Welcome to the Kingo Podcast, where we interview published authors, screenwriters, and story consultants to answer the question, what makes a great story? If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. Let's start today's show. I want to try something new in this show and start with a couple of writing tips. We post these writing tips across our social media and on Kingo.com, but I thought it would be a good idea to make these available to those of us on the go through the podcast. Here's a storytelling tip about your story's climax and the philosophical battle. The climax of a story often consists of a philosophical dilemma. The protagonist must make a decision that will affect the rest of their life. Should Marlin trust Nemo to save Dory? Should Frodo throw the ring into Mount Doom? Should Rick go with Ilsa or allow her to get on the plane and leave him forever? One of the most important requirements of this climax is that we must not know which side the protagonist will choose. There should be true uncertainty. If we know what the answer will be, there's effectively no dilemma. And consequently, what was supposed to be the most climactic moment becomes perhaps the most boring moment. We've got to pull the protagonist in both directions. Ed Catmull of Pixar notes that one reason that Jesse's song had to be added to Toy Story 2 was to make an argument to Woody that kids eventually grow up, move on, and leave you, and that Woody shouldn't go back to Andy because Andy will just leave. This sets up a true dilemma for Woody as to whether he should go back to his old family or stay with his new one. In The Lord of the Rings, we focus on Frodo's desire for the ring in his moment of dilemma. Should he throw the ring in the fire, or keep it for himself. It's not an easy choice by any means. The ring calls to him. What great decision does your protagonist need to make at the climax? And why is it uncertain? Here's a storytelling tip about ticking clocks and urgency. Once you've figured out what your character wants, how they plan to get it, what's going to stop them, and what they stand to lose if they fail, it's time to add a bit of urgency. A ticking clock is a technique to force the protagonist to act on their desires sooner rather than later. In Toy Story, the fact that Andy is moving is the ticking clock. It forces Woody to get back to Andy before the move, or else he'll be lost forever. Once the ticking clock runs out, the protagonist often loses whatever it is they care about most. If Marlin doesn't get to Nemo in time, Darla will take him away. If the Rebels don't destroy the Death Star in time, it'll blow up the Rebel base. If Belle doesn't fall in love with Beast in time, the curse will be permanent. The ticking clock is often the thing that threatens to take away the thing that the protagonist most loves if they don't act sooner rather than later. Does your story have a ticking clock? What is it? Here's a storytelling tip about theme and want versus need. The events of a story are kicked off with a disruption that incites a dramatic question about whether the protagonist will get what they want. Will Marlin find Nemo? Will Carl make it to Paradise Falls? Will Woody find Buzz and get back to Andy? This is what the story appears to be about. In the beginning of the story, the most important question is whether the protagonist will get what they want. But lurking behind that dramatic question is a budding thematic question about the best way to live life. The most pressing question becomes, will Marlin learn to trust others? Will Carl learn that having new adventures is the best way to honor Ellie? Will Woody learn that the best thing he can do to love Andy is to share his love? That which initially seemed the least important is revealed to be the most important. Robert Towne said, At the start of a good movie, the thing that seems most important is actually least important, and the thing that seems the least important is actually the most important. What do we think your story is about? And what's your story actually about? And I just want to say real quickly, if you're writing a book or a screenplay, and you want to get really productive, check out some writing sprints. We've got this Twitter account called Writing Sprinter, W-R-I-T-I-N-G-S-P-R-I-N-T-E-R. It's on Twitter, and we host writing sprints and tournaments every day, all day, so you can come and join us and be productive. And finally, the moment you've been waiting for, let's get to the interview. Today's guest is Caitlin Watkins. She's a freelance editor with an MFA in popular fiction writing and publishing. She's a self-described word nerd and the founder of Watkins Editorial, where she offers a wide range of editing services. Caitlin, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Now, uh, I wanted to talk today a little bit about dialogue. You are an editor, and so I'm sure you've seen dialogue across the board from the good to the bad. So I'm curious to know your thoughts. And one of the first things I was curious about is how do we make dialogue authentic?
1: That is a pretty tricky question. Um, And like you said, I do um, edit and I write myself as well. So I've seen it from both sides. Um, As far as being able to add a real element to it, uh, the first suggestion I have if someone's struggling with this is to revisit the characters involved themselves. Uh, Don't worry so much about what they're trying to say. Kind of treat it like an improv skit. You know where it needs to go, but in order to do that, you need the proper vehicle, I suppose.
0: Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. So you would go back and review your characters, and what do you look for in particular as far as the characters go?
1: Well, you want to know what his or her motivation is is in this. So it really is like looking at an acting scene or an improv game or something like that. You need to know, okay, so this is my goal. This is where we want to get with this conversation. This is why I'm going about writing it in general. But then in order to have basically your stepping stones, you need to know why this conversation is important to Jim or to Sally or whatever your character's name is.
0: So you're raising a really interesting point then. It sounds like you're also saying that dialogue is a tool that characters use to get what they want.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, it's a tool for you too, as a writer. You know, you you may not be right there in the story as an active participant, but you're the one who's carrying it forward. So you have something to say. Like I said, you have a goal with this conversation. So how do you use that conversation to achieve your goal? It's all about... Um, you know, harnessing their voices to project your own message.
0: Excellent. Now for you personally, or what do you recommend? Do you recommend that people plan out the course of a story conversation before they write it? Or do you like to discover it as you go?
1: As a writer, uh, Writing is probably the only area of my life that I do not plan to a T. (laughs) And um, the reason for that is I find that when I do that, whether it's dialogue or world building or anything like that, if I lose myself so much in the planning step-by-step part, then I lose my flow. It doesn't come off as very authentic. It's a little too stiff. Um, And I've talked to a few other writers who feel the same way so whenever they start struggling with their dialogue and they're trying to come at it from this approach i always suggest switching teams basically uh go ahead and try planning it out step by step word for word who's going to say what how is it going to be said are they shouting are they whispering you know and then if it helps then it might just be that you needed to change up your game if it doesn't then it might be the conversation itself
0: Cool. Now, do you have any personal techniques that you use when, I guess, discovering a conversation, anything you do while writing?
1: (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, I have a few, a few good ones that I think um, have served me pretty well and um, that I've suggested to other writers and they seem to helps them along sometimes. Even if it's just the thinking process or getting past a tough part, um, sometimes you just need something else to jog your brain. Uh, so first of all, like I said, I revisit characters and I think about their motivations and who they are and, you know, what they would get out of it if they were real people. Um, or, and this is the suggestion that I give people that will make you look like a crazy person and you just have to kind of embrace it. Uh, (laughs) I will sit there and I will actually talk it out. (laughs) But it totally works. Um, And the thing is, you have to kind of shut up that part of your brain that makes you self-conscious about it as well. You can't be sitting here like, oh, well, I guess Jim would say something like this. Nope, you got to be Jim. You have to decide I am not, insert name here, I am this character, I am these few characters, if it's a conversation between many people, and you just have to let it flow naturally. If you're in tune with your characters, if you know what's going on in your story, then it's one of the best ways I know of, um, at least to work out the kinks.
0: I love that, so you embody the character. I've actually heard of Aaron Sorkin doing this to the point where he broke a bathroom mirror or something and he just gets up and starts pacing and going crazy.
1: <laughs> well, I haven't done that yet. So, so far, so good.
0: <laughs> Excellent. We'll be watching up for that. <laughs>
1: That's
0: a great technique. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we can make character voices distinct in a dialogue?
1: Absolutely. Um, part of it goes back to how you develop that character character. Um, you know, and different things are going to weigh in, such as the dialect of a certain area. If you're writing a story that's set in the American South, then you know you're you're going to have certain isms, uh, certain mannerisms, certain colloquialisms, different expressions that people from, say, like New York City or Albuquerque won't understand. Um, and another thing to remember is that you know. When you talk to someone in your day-to-day, you don't always use perfect grammar, uh, you don't always make a lot of sense on the first pass, and you might leave out something that later you go, oh man, I should have told them so-and-so. So, So, you know, dialogue doesn't have to be perfect. The whole point behind it is to give somebody a very human aspect. Um, So I always tell Any writers that ask me or anybody who I'm I'm kind of consulting with is if it sounds like something that you would write in a research paper, then you need to revisit it because it's not dialogue.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, unless you've got a scientist, of course.
1: Well, (laughs) yeah. Or you have a grammar teacher who is a massive stickler, I guess, then that would work. Yeah. yeah. You're
0: absolutely right. I guess that goes into embodying the character. That's cool.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So.
0: You talked about looking at characters, looking at their motivation, finding out what they want and using tool as using dialogue as a tool. Do you have any additional thoughts on how to make dialogue engaging or or is it just really focusing on goals and how they conflict?
1: Well, you can also look into the nitty gritty of the way you're writing it as well. Um, By that, I mean, you know, if someone is shouting or if someone is just angry in general, then their sentences should reflect that even from the page. It shouldn't be stagnant. Um, any of your dialogue tags like said or asked or anything like that, they should reflect what's happening. Uh, you shouldn't just go through the motions or else it's going to sound like your characters are doing the same thing. Um, and you know, in certain types of dialogue, uh, if someone's having an argument, then yeah, you wanna be able to have like the action, like say so-and-so starts pacing and pulling at his hair because he's just so frustrated. You have to show that with the dialogue without overwhelming the dialogue. So it's a delicate balance. Um, And there are certain situations that can be a little bit easier to represent. Um, Monologues are really easy to go forward with a lot of action because, you know, you want to break up some of that speech. So it's all about balancing it out and making sure that, you know, you have the elements that are going to help you set your scene and build your world and add to the character itself. But you also need to carry it forward.
0: So is there anything in particular you see common mistakes perhaps that we should watch out for? Or do you think you've kind of covered that so far?
1: Well, I guess I'd first say that technically you can't have a mistake as long as your dialogue gets you to where you need to be. Uh, So going back to my example of an improv game or a scene out of a play you know when actors are up on the stage they're going to mess up it's just a fact I mean yeah you can get pretty close (laughs) but somebody's gonna flow the line or they're not going to do one of the directions on the page that you guys rehearsed Um, so part of that is that there there are technically no mistakes um, but I would say that what I covered before as far as things getting stagnant or not fitting the mood those would be the most common things that I think would be put off, like off-putting, to a reader.
0: That's good to watch out for. Cool. Now I would like to broaden our scope here and catch you unprepared and ask you the question <laughs> yeah. that I am personally obsessed with: What makes a story great? Like, what takes a, a story from pretty good to timeless?
1: I was about to say. I think I'm going to be a little bit difficult and say timeless to whom? Mm,
0: excellent, and such a great point that stories are subjective.
1: Right, because I mean, everyone has a favorite book or a favorite movie. If you're not a great reader, you know, and so nobody's is the same. Or if it is, then you know, you happen to meet your your book soulmate or whatever. But Everyone finds something different out of a story. So I don't think there is one definitive answer. Um, As writers, I would say you can shoot for that by making it timeless to you. Uh, What, what resonates with you in your favorite story? I'm not saying go out and copy it. I'm saying capture whatever element it is that breathes life into it. Um, If you're writing a children's book about a dog who is lost in the park, then I better feel for the dog. Yeah. You know? <laughs> or uh, if you're writing a historical fiction about someone who's lost everything they ever owned and they're trying to make their way in the world, then I need to be on the edge of my seat going, oh my God, what would I do next? So I think, I think the best answer I can give is to... Make sure that you're not using writing as a passive exercise. Uh, Keep it very active. Um, Make sure that you're drawing on not just your experiences, but other people's. You can go with current events to give you a little bit of inspiration. You can go with something that happened in someone else's life. Whatever it is, make sure that it is real. So that you can write fiction, I love that.
0: <laughs> and one of the things it also sounds like you were getting at too was creating a strong connection to a character, so that we actually cares what, so that we actually care what happens to them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, speaking from my own uh, preferences, when I am reading, uh, I definitely identify better with a story that has at least one strong lead. You can have a few strong leads, uh, but as long as there is at least one uh, to which you know, we can not fall back on, but when things get chaotic or if a lot of action starts coming into play or if maybe there's a complicated uh, plot line, uh, any sort of conflict or, you know, major loss, anything like that, there needs to be at least one strong lead that we can come back to and say, OK, well, how is so-and-so feeling about this?
0: That makes sense. It gives us something to hang on to and, and explore the story world through.
1: Right, right. It grounds you. It kind of gives you a lens, as it were.
0: Nice. Now, do you have any particular advice for how you do this personally or what you recommend to other people? How you start a story or how you brainstorm a story or, or just start writing?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, like I said, I writing is one of the only areas of my life where I don't plan everything out. Uh, so. My my usual process, I guess, is most of the time, I get an idea when I'm not trying to think of one. Uh, it'll just kind of come into my head or I'll remember bits and pieces from a dream or I'll be somewhere and I'll see something happen and I'll think, oh man, I wonder what would happen next. So that's where it usually starts. It It could be random. It could just kind of, not to sound like a cliche, but just kind of come to me Um, and then what I like to do next is without ever opening a Word document, without picking up a piece of paper or a pen, I like to think about what might be the general progression from there. Like I said, it could be an inciting event. It could be just a person that seems really interesting. So what makes him or her interesting or what happens after the event because this happened? so I don't like to sit down and write it out until I've kind of gotten in my head, okay, so some key players, um, if this happens, then maybe so-and-so reacts this way. It's a very loose sort of almost movie playing in my head for a little while. i just, eh, well, you know, what I said about that guy, he probably wouldn't react that way. So he probably wouldn't cause this to happen. It's, it's not very it's not very sorted out until then I kind of sit down and start writing from one of those major points that I identified.
0: Hmm. Is there anything in particular that you look for in an idea? Do you you follow all of the ideas you have or is there something you see that makes you think you shouldn't go with it?
1: (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, Every writer will tell you, there have been plenty of ideas that were just garbage. (laughs) Um, Or plenty of ideas that you weren't prepared to make into something better at the time. Uh, So whenever I'm chasing down an idea, it goes back into uh, finding something to hold on to. So I could have some random idea and I could think, oh, maybe that's a great story. But then when I go through my usual process of thinking, okay, well, then what would happen next or who might come in here? Or is this believable? Or in some cases, is it just fantastic enough that people won't care if it's believable? Um, Then if it comes to a certain point where I just run out of avenues to explore, then what I usually do, I actually have um, on my personal computer a document that is titled Orphans. (laughs) and that is where all of the ideas that i haven't been able to flesh out or i'm not willing yet to flesh out um, go to live until i'm ready to go back and see if i can make something with them
0: so nothing ever truly dies i like that
1: yeah yeah like i said they're orphans until i adopt them again
0: (laughs) (laughs) great so jumping to the other side of the spectrum, let's say now that you've got a full first draft, what are your favorite editing tips?
1: Ooh, for the writer or for a second pair of eyes?
0: Ooh. Okay. They're, they're probably different then. I guess I'd be curious to hear both.
1: Yeah. Well, I always tell people, um, and you know, I've, I've put it on my website, i put it out there everywhere. Every editor will tell you the same thing. Before you give it to someone else to read, you should always do at least one pass on your own. Um, and it doesn't have to be for punctuation and grammar and all that stuff. It could just be in general. Do I like the way this sounds? Um, so as a writer going back and looking over the first draft, it's always kind of, um, for me anyway, (laughs) it's always a bit painful (laughs) (laughs) because I want to be hard on myself. I really do. Uh, you know, to identify what could possibly, you know, turn a reader off or make someone go, oh, yeah, I really don't care about this. <laughs> so I want to be hard on myself, which means being hard on anything I've written. But I'm one of those people that because I, you know, dive so deeply into my characters and I really build up what the world that I see in my head. Any insult towards one of them, or criticism, I guess, is kind of a criticism back on me. So I'm like, oh, well, what was I thinking? You know what you were thinking. (laughs) So um, as a writer, I would say probably the toughest part going through and some of the best tips I could give you would be to try and take yourself out of it, which for me sometimes means taking a break between writing the first draft and editing it. Um, it's never a bad idea. Hell I mean it's not a it's not a bad idea to take breaks while you're writing it. Give yourself like a week off or a weekend or something to do, anything else. Get your brain out of that world, then come back to it, you'll feel refreshed, uh, you'll be able to look at some things that might have been giving you issues before and think, oh, well, why don't I just try this? So number one tip, I guess I would say for writers is to try not to get too far into your own head, but if you do. Step back, take a second, pull out, retreat, whatever you want to call it, and uh, just kind of regain your perspective. Um, Let's see for editors. Um, For editors, I'd actually probably say the opposite. Um, The reason being is that if you write as well, then you also know just how much of themselves that a person put into this. So if you don't walk into it and at least try to invest yourself, then you're not going to see what they were seeing as they wrote it. Does that make sense? So, you know, you walk into it and you're thinking, yeah, okay. They they gave me a synopsis. It it sounds like it could be okay. That's a terrible attitude to have. Um, And unfortunately, I do know some people who do that when they critique things, whether it's writing or anything else. And it's... It's kind of heartbreaking um, because you know how much work someone put into it and everything. So number one tip would be to walk into it with your eyes wide open because, you know, that's your job. But also with an open mind, uh, be ready for the writer to surprise you or uh, you can walk into it and be ready to see something like you you've really invested in something that was in their synopsis or their pitch that stuck out to you so you're waiting for it you're you're just on the edge of your seat wanting to see that and then something comes out of left field totally flattens you and you find a whole new reason to love it
0: i love that you're talking about as an editor how to respect both the creator and the creation and thinking about how in the creator's mind they're often not separate
1: right yeah well you know you I'm sure you've heard the old adage where everyone writes something of themselves into the story, whether it's a character that closely resembles you, um, a situation that you were in once, uh, something that you heard from a friend that you're trying to process through this exercise. Something about it is going to come out and it's going to be a part of you, whether you mean to or not. So it, it really is all about respecting both sides of it, while also as an editor, being able to look at it and say, okay, I get where you're going with this. I understand that this is what you wanted to do. But let's see if we can't make it better.
0: Now, you mentioned you're a discovery writer. And do you have any particular, I know you probably don't outline then, but do you have any signposts that you try to hit when writing?
1: Well, sure. Um, I'll actually have a giant marker board in my apartment where when I start getting into the more complicated parts of a plot or I'm trying to, uh, one of the more common ones is when I'm trying to show how characters are going to eventually be linked or be at odds with one another, I try to map that out a little bit. Um, so by signpost, do you mean kind of like a warning sign that maybe I'm not on the right track or... Um, if I get to that stage where I'm writing on my board and I'm trying to use all the the colors to make sense of what's going on in my brain, um, one of the, I guess one of the signposts I would say is if I come to a point where I know that, like say it's with the characters, I know that these two characters need to have a confrontation at some point. They need to have some sort of conflict that's going to exacerbate whatever situation's happening. If I can't, Figure out how to link them, whether it be through that confrontation, or maybe I go ahead and delve into some backstory, and maybe they were best friends at one point. Maybe they were the best of buddies, you could have called them brothers, and then one of them did something that just blew it all to hell. If I can't identify how I'm going to show that, or how I'm going to highlight the relationship in the most simple of terms, then it's probably a sign that I either need to step back or this story, it belongs in the orphans for a while.
0: I love that though. I love this idea of the the orphan document where you kind of keep things fluid. That's pretty cool. <laughs>
1: it, it's pretty handy. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like having your own personal file cabinet and being able to dump these things that you know you don't need them right now, but you'll want them later. So it's kind of a nice way to dump them there. And my document has gotten so giant that I kind of have like signposts of my own, t- so that I can quickly search through the document and find things. But you know, when you're just starting it out, it can just be a simple matter of cut and paste.
0: And then the the benefit, obviously, is if you run across any sort of writer's block, you can just dive into this document.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. If I'm ever stuck on anything, then I do pull out that document and I, you know, try to remember. Oh, did I write? this particular argument already or did i write something where it describes a place sort of like this where i might be able to pull some of these and you know, descriptors and the feelings that kind of go with it to move past this difficult spot and even if i can't even if i'm not finding what i'm looking for it still goes back to that suggestion i had of taking yourself out of the story for a little bit you're going back over random things that you wrote at a different time that have nothing to do with what you're doing. And it might be just what you need to get you back on track.
0: So is there any final advice you would like to give us or, and or uh, anything that you're working on right now that you want to <laughs> let everybody know about?
1: Ooh, um let me think on the advice one. There's, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but <laughs> um, uh, I will say that at the moment, I'm actually working on edits from an editor for me. (laughs) So yes, even editors need editors. Uh, (laughs) So from that, I guess a good piece of advice would be to, no matter how much you write, uh, no matter how much you read from other people, make sure that you don't forget your roots. Like I said, even editors need editors. We all need someone else to look back over it. Because at this point, and a, you know, this particular manuscript has been my baby for years. <laughs> at this point, uh, so and I actually used it in some of my grad school work and my thesis and all of that. So it's it's been through the ringer, uh, but I'm still finding things that I want to change. So my editor's gone through it one time. I'm going to go through um, and keep on getting some of her suggestions, uh, work through some of the points that she thought you know might need a little love. Cut some things, um, I've actually cut a lot. so from that I I would definitely say it's a good exercise to go back and be the writer and not just the editor.
0: Great, So you'll keep us updated on the book then.
1: Absolutely. like I said, I, I have to get through this round of edits. It's been one of those slightly painful exercises, but it's getting better um, as I move further into it, I guess I got a little bit better at, uh, cutting things on my own editing rounds, the further in I got too. so. <laughs> oh, that's
0: great. Well, we'll need to have you back to do a sort of post-mortem and like what you learned, what you would have done differently and other things.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, this, this work has been through the river a few times, but it obviously still needed something done to it. So keep on.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Caitlin. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again for having me.
0: Thanks to Caitlin Watkins for taking the time to be with us here today, and for sharing her writing, storytelling, and editing knowledge with us. You can find links to her site, Watkins Editorial, and her social media in the show notes. I'm also in the process of writing a book, which will be a collection of writing and storytelling techniques and tools that are used across the industry by various writers. And with that said, I'd like to share with you an excerpt from the book about Desire. Dramatic situations are made most compelling when conflict exists as a structural opposition of desires. So what does that mean exactly? It means that if one character gets what they want, the other character can't. It means that two characters want the same underlying thing, exclusively, even when it may not seem like they want the same thing on the surface. For instance, what are the police officer and the criminal really fighting over? They're fighting over control of the freedom of the criminal. What are the detective and the murderer really fighting over? They're fighting over control of the truth that the public and the justice system will believe. In Goodwill Hunting, Will and Professor Lambeau are both fighting over control of Will's future. In The Dark Knight, the Joker and Batman are fighting over control of the soul of Gotham. When it comes to the control of something, there can only be one winner. We might also think of this as two characters who have irreconcilable and clashing agendas. Of course, it's possible for two characters to have desires that are both attainable. The two characters might only clash in their plans. This doesn't provide deep opposition, however, and allows for the two characters to find a way to either work together, or at least to attain their respective desires with no conflict. This is generally bad for maintaining drama, but it can serve an interesting thematic lesson. The moment the fate of a desire becomes uncertain, which is often the moment when the desire meets opposition, a state of dramatic tension arises called a dramatic question. The dramatic question is essentially, will the protagonist attain their desire? Now to generate dramatic tension, all we need to do is establish a character desire, and then make the fate of that desire uncertain. Dramatic tension is perhaps the most powerful driver of audience interest, and usually serves as the primary source of global tension over the course of a story. It's worth noting that the potential tension in a dramatic question is roughly proportional to our ability to concretely visualize the exact moment of resolution of the desire. After all, how can we be tense about the result of a desire if we don't know whether it's been attained or lost? If a character has a desire to be successful, that's not concretely measurable. Is this desire attained after the protagonist buys a car? Is it attained once they sell a particular number of units? We don't know. The desire to win the competition, on the other hand, is concretely measurable. We know definitively and without doubt whether the protagonist has attained or failed to attain that desire at any given moment. Well, that was an excerpt from the book. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm still putting together a bunch of tools and techniques that are used by different writers, but this is a great start on the foundational bit of drama. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. You can learn more about storytelling and writing lessons at kingo.com. That's K I I N G O.com. That's all for today. Now, let's get to work and write some great stories.